God, we do thank you and praise you for this morning. And God, we just pray, um, Lord, with all of our hearts that you would allow us to experience the beauty and the wonder and the goodness of Jesus today. God, that is our prayer because, Lord, we know if we experience Jesus, we will never be the same. And so, God, allow that transformation to take place in our lives, even as we look at Hosea chapters two and three. God, help us to see Jesus, I pray in his name, amen. Well, we have launched into a new sermon series uh, concerning Hosea. Uh, yet last week was our first uh, Sunday in this book. We'll be in this book for the next uh, five weeks. And before we dive into uh, chapters two and three, just wanted to remind us uh, of why we're in this book at this time. So four reasons. If uh, you were here last week, just need a reminder, or if you weren't here, um, here's why we're in this book. Number one, uh, Hosea helps us to remember the beauty of God's grace by feeling the scandal of it. There's something about the way that this minor prophet book has been written, which is filled with so much poetry, that we're not just supposed to know God's love, but we're supposed to, to feel it. Number two, second reason why we're in this is that many believers are unfamiliar with the 12 minor books from Hosea to Malachi. And it's a shame because there's so many uh, helpful things in these books. And so we want to spend time over the next couple of weeks to kind of shape our theology of minor prophets by looking at Hosea. And then number three, Hosea, and we'll look at this today, addresses the painful problem of spiritual adultery. This is an issue that didn't go away when the prophets moved off the scene. This is something that we struggle with here in our world the culture in the 8th century that Israel was living in is very similar to the culture that we live in today. And so we want to consider carefully and feel deeply this issue of spiritual adultery. And then number four, the fourth reason is that Hosea has multiple foreshadows of the gospel in it. That Jesus is actually in this book. This book points forward to the work and person of Jesus Christ, especially in chapter three. You're gonna sense me just, I can't wait to get to chapter three today as I, as I preach through chapter two um, because it's such a powerful book that points to the beauty of, of Christ in uh, the gospel. So we're gonna look through this book through the lens of the new covenant, uh, through what Jesus has already done for us. And honestly, like our, our prayer as pastors would be that, that we would really feel the seriousness of our sin through this book, really the, the scandal of our sin and the greatness of God's love for us. One thing that we looked at last week is that God chose to really deliver this message to a wayward people. Uh, this is written to uh, the people of Israel in the eighth century. And the way that the Lord uses, um, a, a way that the Lord kind of communicates this message is he uses Hosea, who's a prophet, to marry a woman who was wayward named Gomer. This is a, an enacted metaphor that delivers such a powerful message. And what we're, what we're forced to do is to find ourselves in this story. We're, we're forced to find ourselves in the drama of Hosea and Gomer and to really conclude that I am Gomer, you are Gomer, and that God is our Hosea. So the theme of Hosea that we looked at last week is that God gives grace to wayward people because he is God. That God loves us and God shows us grace, not because we're so lovable, not because we have anything to offer, but because he is God and it is his nature to 
love. And so today, looking at chapters two and three, here's our big idea that I'll spend the rest of our time unpacking. It's that God lovingly pursues his people with redemptive grace. God lovingly pursues his people with redemptive grace. One thing that this passage is going to do for us is we're not just gonna learn about God's grace, but we're going to feel God's grace. One thing that my three-year-old daughter Ellie does to me when she's trying to tell me something really, really important and she's trying to, to grab my attention is that she'll actually grab my face and like focus it onto her eyes and what she's saying. And she'll put my face, like my, our noses are touching and she's trying to like communicate something really, really important. Like I need more chocolate milk or something like that. She's, she's trying to grab my attention because I'm, I'm over here doing something else. And, and so this morning, like, what chapters two and three, what they're going to do, this is God's way of grabbing our face and, and kind of focusing in on his amazing love and his amazing grace as he pursues us, even though we've all committed spiritual adultery. And so if this passage like hits you in the chest, then we're reading this correctly today. Okay? I want you to feel God grabbing your face and focusing in on his grace and his love. So let's look at the first uh, passage or the first section here, uh, chapter two, verses one through 13, the empty pursuit of Israel's idolatry. Chapter two is intentionally graphic. Chapter two illustrates really uh, Israel's unfaithfulness to God and the fact that their unfaithfulness will not go unpunished that God in chapter two lays out these really horrible threats of judgment and punishment. And so on one hand, we are supposed to feel the depths of God's anger and his judgment against sin. And yet on the other hand, I want you to notice how much grace is in chapter two, that as God is prepared to, to lay out and to follow through with these judgments, God is still yearning for Israel to repent and to be restored in relationship with him. So, so don't just think that God's grace is all about chapter three. No, no, God's grace is all over chapter two, even as he disciplines Israel and punishes her. Even notice verse one in chapter two, how this even begins and kind of sets the tone for our whole passage. It says, God says, say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy. He begins, and this is really a declaration by God of a prophetic word of comfort. This verse, this is a reality that will happen in the future for the Israelites, that there will be a day in which Israel and Judah will be reunited and they will be living in harmony in the relationship with God and they will speak these words to one another. And yet that will only happen after the fullness of punishment is complete. But notice how loving that is of God to like begin kind of this discourse of punishment by giving a promise of future hope and restoration to Israel. And chapter two, I think, includes maybe the most graphic words of judgment in the whole Bible, yet it begins with a posture and a tone of grace. Now, transition to uh, verse two, there is a strong pivot here as this is the beginning of God's judgment on Israel. But notice again, God is the one that's pleading. And if you notice specifically here, God is appealing to plead, and it's not directed to Israel, it's directed to the children of Israel here. 
that the nation of Israel is the mother and the individuals who have been faithful to God, they are the children. And so God's not even pleading and speaking directly to the nation of Israel. They're, they're not even on good enough terms for him to do that. And so he's trying to appeal to the nation of Israel through the children that the nation of Israel would even repent. Now, if you look at the second half of verse two, it describes what he wants them to plead about, namely for them to repent of their harlotry and adultery. Now, when you get to verses two and three, even as Scott was reading that, you almost have to gulp a little bit. Like these are, these are really graphic words here. This is intentionally graphic as, as the, the, the scene is kind of painted for us of the unfaithfulness of Israel. That God is calling Israel to put away her whoring from her face and her adultery between her breasts. So these are two descriptors that refer to really the, the branding of harlotry. And one thing that, that these verses are trying to communicate to us as, as they're constructed is that Israel wasn't just doing harlot-type activities, but they're taking it a step further, and this is actually becoming their identity, that they are now the harlots, not just that they participate in those types of activities. And so as a result, in verse 3, God calls for change, calls for repentance by threatening to bring shame on the nation and dry up the land so that there is no more fruitfulness or fertility. This is similar to a dishonored husband who uncovers the nakedness of his wife caught in the act. A God is, is, is threatening to humiliate his people and turn their fertile homelands into bare deserts which produce nothing. Now, why is this punishment so bad? Like, why, why, is, why is God laying down this harsh judgment on Israel? What, what is Israel supposed to feel with these words? Well, remember, during this time period in the eighth century for Israel, this was a time in which there was unparalleled success and prosperity. This was a time in which Israel was booming, both economically and politically. This rivals the days of King Solomon. And yet God here warns of a divine curse on the land and the removal of life-giving rain. You might think to yourself, well, that's no big deal. Like, why is that such a big deal? Well, Baal was Israel's lover. Baal was a Canaanite, ancient Canaanite and Mesopotamian God who was associated with agriculture. He was the God of rain and fertility. He was believed to be the giver of life and the one who was responsible for the fruitfulness of crops and life. And so what God is doing here, he's not just giving just random punishments and judgments on Israel. No, no, no. God is showing Israel that her lover Baal is powerless and that her unfaithfulness will not go unpunished. In fact, when you get to verse three, and he says to her, he says, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. What God is saying here is, hey, Israel, I'm going to take you back to the, the place of wilderness in the desert when I first formed you. If you remember, the, the beginning of, of God's people and the nation of Israel came out of the Exodus, came out of the parting of the Red Sea, and they were in the wilderness. They were wandering. They had nothing so God is threatening here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you back there where you had absolutely nothing. 
Then in verse four, it shows that the punishment will be for the whole nation. Even, uh, even these individuals, their offspring will be punished as well. Now, you just stop there. Do you feel the weight of the judgment here? Do you feel the weight of, of God's anger towards sin and specifically towards the sin of spiritual adultery? You're supposed to feel that in the depths of our heart that God does not treat sin lightly. And then you get to verses five through eight, and God gives specific accusations against the nation of Israel and really explains why these punishments are coming. In verse five, we learn more about what Israel has done. It says that she went after her lovers, referring to uh, the Baals here, from whom she believed that she received the necessities of life from. So Israel believed that all of these blessings, the bread and, and the water and the wool for clothing and oil for cooking, and the fuel for lamps and medications and cosmetics and cultic ceremonies. Israel thought all that came from their God, Baal. And so God is saying, no, 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 this all came from me. So what we see here is that Israel is committing spiritual adultery. And at the root of spiritual adultery is idolatry. So idolatry is the root issue of what provoked God's anger. See, Israel not only failed to acknowledge God as the giver of these good gifts, but Israel was starting to look to Baal for only what God can provide. Look at verse eight for a moment. It says, and she did not know that it was I, referring to God, who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on the silver and gold, which was used for Baal. So look, Israel has pursued Baal, has loved Baal, and, and even uses the gifts and the blessings that God has given Israel in order to worship Baal. So fundamentally, at the root issue here, this is idolatry, and this is what led to God's outpouring of his anger onto Israel. Let me just pause for a moment. and just If we were just honest this morning, What's really easy to do as we live in 2017 is to look at this and say, no, 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 that, that doesn't relate to me. Like th this, is, this is foreign to me. I don't, I don't worship a God named Baal. I, I don't worship these, these golden statues. I don't believe in this stuff. And so what's really easy for us to do when we read something like this is to create this distance between what Israel struggled with and what you and I struggle with on a daily basis, and so we want to kind of create this gap and say, no, no, no I, this doesn't apply to, I don't struggle with this. And yet, one thing I want us to see this morning is that we all struggle with this issue of idolatry. Now, it may not look like worshiping a God named Baal, but at the root issue, the way that it's uh, demonstrated in our lives, we all struggle with this issue. Now, what do I mean by idolatry? Well, idolatry is anything that is more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. It's basically anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. Tim Keller provides a, a really helpful definition of what an idol is. He says that an idol is anything in your life that is so central to your life that if you lose it, you don't have any meaning. You can't do without it. It is taking something and making it an ultimate in your life. 
In fact, John Calvin, who was one of the reformers, he said that every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols, that our idols are a perpetual factory of idol making. And so when you think about idolatry, you think about what Israel uh, fell into here, don't think so much about Baal and these golden statues. But when you think about idolatry, think about it this way, that idolatry is anything that you look at and you say in your heart, if I have that, then I'll have significance. It's anything that you look at and you say, if I have that, then I'll have meaning. If I have that, then I'll have satisfaction. If I have that, then I'll actually be a somebody. And see, with with that understanding of idolatry, we can even take good things in our life and turn them into idols, can't we? We we can take people and relationships and uh, successes and goals and careers and money and possession. We can take all of those things and make them into an ultimate in our life. I'm sure even as I'm defining and describing what idolatry is, I'm sure the Lord is, is kind of bringing to mind some idols in your own life. You might be wondering, well, what do we do with these things? What, what do we do with, with spiritual adul- adultery and idolatry in our life? Well, Tim Keller, I'll quote him again. He's kind of the guru on, on idolatry. In his book, The Gospel in Life, How Grace Changes Everything, he says this about idolatry and what we are to do with them. He says, why do we lie or fail to love or break our promises or live selfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful. But the specific answer is that there is something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy, something that is more important to our heart than God, and something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. Then he says this, he says, the key to change and even a self-understanding, is therefore to identify the idols of the heart. So what Tim Keller says is the way to change, the way to get rid of our idols is to first identify the different idols that are in our hearts. Now notice, he doesn't say the, the idols that serve as kind of the symptoms in our lives. See, when we, when we talk about change, and we talk about getting rid of idols in our life, sometimes we only attack and change the symptoms that the root issue of idolatry is producing. See, for for many of us, we've got dozens upon dozens of of different symptoms of sin in our life, and we come to a point in our life where, man, I I wanna get rid of the sin in my life. And, And what we tend to do is we only attack the symptoms, and yet we don't get rid of the root issue of idolatry. And so we might remove one symptom, and yet that root, that foundational idol produces another symptom the next day, and we get rid of that, and we produces another symptom in our life. And what Tim Keller is encouraging us to do is to look at the foundational idols that reside in our heart that serve as the root issue that then produces the fruit of sin in our lives. So let me get a little bit more specific this morning. This is really, really important. And Keller actually unpacks what the four foundational idols are in the life of of a believer. And so let me unpack these uh, over the next couple of moments. I just just wanna challenge you this morning to just ask the question, which of these four hit me? Like which of these four like describe my life and my relationship to idolatry. Just try to resist the temptation to think, oh, I'm glad my spouse is in the room to hear this. 
or I'm glad so-and-so is going to hear. So try to resist that and try to understand what is God trying to say to me, to reveal to me about idolatry. So here, here are the four. Here's the first one. One categorical idol is approval. It's approval. If you struggle with this idol, you value affirmation, you value love, you might love relationships, but primarily you love relationships because of what they give you. You might struggle with finding your significance and what other people think of you. That your energy and your mood is largely determined by other people's acceptance of you. That you tend to overanalyze and overthink what other people think of you and if they accept you or like you or not. And if you struggle with this idol, your greatest nightmare is rejection. In fact, you'll, you'll even bypass conflict to avoid uh, having an opportunity to be rejected. And yet the people around you might often feel smothered and they might feel smothered because you're constantly looking to others to validate your existence. And someone who struggles with approval, the, the problem emotion is fear, that you're, you're terrified of, of somebody not liking you or accepting you. That, that's approval. The second uh, categorical idol that Keller unpacks here is comfort. If you struggle with this idol, you value freedom from obligations, freedom from deadlines and mandates, that you love having a lack of responsibilities and stress. You're, you're obsessed with pleasure of all kinds. And yet your greatest nightmare is not having enough freedom to do exactly what you want to do. In fact, people around you often feel neglected because you're not making an effort in the relationship. If you struggle with this, your problem emotion is boredom. That you're bored a lot because pursuing something or investing yourself into something is just too much work and it risks having stress in your life so you just don't do it. So that's comfort. Number three, another categorical idol is control. This is a big one, control. If you see control, you love self-discipline. You love certainty. You love having standards. You love to be in the know and what the game plan is. And so as a result, you are rarely spontaneous because risk is the enemy. And oftentimes you tend to think that relationships, since they require a great deal of risk, you tend to be distant in your relationships. Your greatest nightmare is uncertainty, not, not knowing what's going on or what's going to happen. And yet your problem emotion is worry and anxiety. Your head never stops. Your stomach is often in knots, concerned about something. That's control. Last one here, the fourth categorical idol is power. If you seek power, if you struggle with this idol, you value success and influence and winning, that you'll do whatever it takes to achieve your goals, even at the expense of relationships. This is what you think about. This is what you daydream about. And yet your greatest nightmare is failure. It's humiliation. It's not attaining your goals, not succeeding or losing power. Yet people around you often feel used by you. They feel like you've got an agenda in how they interact with you. And your problem emotion is anger. Maybe not publicly, but definitely inwardly. Now, when you think about like, those four foundational idols, Keller would say that, that from those uh, four foundational idols, 
then produces all kinds of symptoms of sin that we see in our lives. And so the first step in getting rid of these idols is by identifying what what kind of idols actually reside in here that take root in our hearts. And you might be thinking as as you're hearing each of those four unpacked, man, I, I struggle with all four of those. And maybe the next thought is like, how did I get to this place? Like, I I love Jesus. I love the gospel. I love God's word. And yet, man, I I struggle with idolatry. You may even wonder, how how did Israel get to this place? Like, Israel is God's chosen nation. Like, how how did Israel get, get to this place of just being filled with idolatry and spiritual adultery? Well, I think the reason why we fall into this is that we we fall into the trap of believing the lie of sin. See, when sin approaches us, it it always promises something that it never delivers upon. You notice that? Like sin comes to us and and it promises us satisfaction. It promises us fulfillment or an identity or purpose or some type of meaning in life. And yet the more and more we chase those promises, the more that we realize that it just never comes through. And so, our choice then is to think, man, did I, did I do this wrong? Like, and so we start to pursue either other idols or we go deeper into that same idol. Because one thing that happens when we, when we get wrapped up into idolatry is that the scriptures say that our hearts actually become callous to the sin and to the pleasure of sin. And so the more that our hearts become callous, the more that it drives us deeper into that sin and into that idolatry. And so we, we find ourselves kind of in this endless cycle of idolatry in our lives where we go deeper and deeper into the sin or we add on different kinds of idols. And so that's why we tend to become blind to the sin in our lives. That's why we justify the sin in our lives, why we rationalize it, why we, we blame shift it, why we kind of explain it away or we say, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, that's sin blinding us and causing us to be more and more callous. And you see this even in Israel. Look at verse seven. Look at the way that it describes the condition of Israel, that she uh, tells us that she pursued her lovers, yet what? Could not find them. <laughs> isn't that interesting? Like, doesn't that, doesn't that resonate a little bit too close to home? Like you're, you're searching and you're searching and you're looking for satisfaction in all of these idols and yet you come up empty. See, that's the idol's work in our lives. It never delivers upon the promise and Israel is experiencing that in verse seven. Does that, does that describe you today? Like does that, does that describe kind of your bouncing from idol to idol looking to be satisfied, looking to be fulfilled? If I could sum up, um, Israel's kind of this empty pursuit of idolatry. I would uh, take the, the quote by Adrian Rogers here, who said that sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Man, isn't that true? If we had, if we had idolatry up here, we interviewed idolatry for a moment, he would say, yeah, that's my strategy. Like that's what I'm trying to do in the lives of people. And yet one thing that we all have experienced, one thing that we find out about our idols is that our idols never love us back. Our idols always, always disappoint. They never deliver upon what they promise. And in fact, what the idols want to do in your life is destroy you. 
They want to destroy everything about you. And look, God knows that. God knows that that's what's taking place in the nation of Israel here. And so like a good lover that Israel is, he doesn't just sit back and watch all this take place. God is on the move here. God starts to act. Look at verse six here. We, we learn that God tries to prevent further idolatry in the nation of Israel, that he puts up a wall against her so she could not get to her lovers. And then, because that didn't bring about repentance, God starts to remove things from Israel in verses nine through 13. Specifically, uh, God starts to remove the, the resources in her life in verse nine. He removes the secrecy of her sin in verse 10. He removes the, the different celebrations in verse 11. He removes the objects of trust in her lovers in verse 12. And then he removes his favor in verse 13 by actually punishing her. Now in this passage, like I said in the beginning, you're, you're gonna see the, the love of God, God's grace coming out even in the way that he disciplines Israel. Because look, the, the most loving thing that God could do in this scenario is to discipline Israel. So you'd be unloving for God just to sit back and watch all this happen. God had to get engaged. God had to be on the move. And we see that in the discipline of the Lord upon Israel, that he's, he's punishing them in order to woo them back to himself. It reminds me of, of Hebrews chapter 12, which uh, describes the discipline of the Lord. It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. See, there's hope in the discipline of the Lord. See, there's so much love in, in the way that God brings about even consequences in our lives. And he does that even with us, not just Israel here. So you might be here this morning in, in a, a season of life in which you are experiencing and feeling the discipline of God. You might be feeling some of the consequences of your sin. And can I just encourage you not, not to run from God, not to be angry with God, but to understand that the discipline of the Lord in your life is there in order to woo you back to himself by repenting and leaving the idols in your life. And so we see that here, even with Israel's empty pursuit of idolatry, God is still loving this nation. He does not stop chasing them. So that's section number one. Section number two here is, is the loving pursuit of God's grace. The loving pursuit of God's grace. Now, I won't spend a, a lot of time in this section because in chapter three, chapter three will really summarize uh, verses 14 through 23 of chapter two as we jump back into this prophetic reenactment that Hosea has with Gomer. And so I'll kind of summarize this section, but I, I first want you to notice that in verse 14, there is a shift that takes place with God starting to pursue Israel. So God has tried preventing Israel from sinning. He's, he's tried removing things from her. He's tried disciplining her. And now he turns to trying to allure her and woo her and bring her back from the wilderness. I think it's significant to know that in our passage, chapters two and chapters three, God says, I will over 24 times. Look, God is, is on the move here. 
God is acting, God is chasing, God is pursuing uh, Israel in order to get Israel to uh, repent here. And in verses 14 through 23, note that these are, these are future promises, that these are realities that will happen in the future. And so God is laying this out for Israel in order to try to woo them back in repentance. Look, that's really helpful to know. Like as, as we're battling idolatry, it's important to know that God often motivates us by future blessing. But the way that we battle temptation, the way that we repent of, of the idols in our life, it's with something greater in our lives, namely the promises of God in Jesus. See, if you, if you just removed an idol in your life, that idol is just gonna pop up in some other shape or fashion. What we have to do with our idols is exchange them with something greater and bigger and stronger than the sin, which is Jesus and the promises that we have in him. And so as God is kind of laying this out for the nation of Israel, he knows that. And so he wants them to understand his scandalous love and grace that he has for this nation in order that they would leave the idols and the spiritual adultery and fill that throne in their hearts with him and him alone. Let me show you what I mean. Look at chapter three here as we, as we turn to close. Chapter three is a portrait of God's redemptive grace. Okay, we're jumping back in to Hosea and Gomer here as he reenacts this metaphor of God's love for Israel and God's love for the whole world. Again, we are supposed to feel God's grace and the scandal of his grace in order to uproot the idols in our lives. Okay, so don't just think about factual stuff here. Allow this to penetrate your heart. And look what God says in chapter three, verse one. He says, then the Lord said to me, go again, Hosea, go and, and love a woman who was loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now look, he is talking about his wife, Gomer here. Okay, so this is, this is Hosea's assignment that he is to go and find his wife, Gomer, who has left him, has left his children and is now into prostitution. That's his assignment. Now, if you're, if you're Hosea, you're like, wait, wait, what? Like, why, why do you want me to do that, Lord? And, and it continues on in verse one. He says, he says, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So the reason why God has Hosea do this is because God wants Israel to know what true love is like. That love is not pursuing these other gods, not pursuing Baal. God is trying to give them a picture of his love by demonstrating it in Hosea's pursuit of Gomer. And when it says Israel here, it, it literally means Israel, but it also prophetically refers to God's love for all of humanity. And so look, this is, this is an amazing picture of God's love here. One theologian described it this way. He said, outside the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, Undoubtedly, the story of Hosea and Gomer is the greatest expression of God's love for the world in all of the Bible. This is an unbelievable reality, what we see here. So, so look, so Hosea is tasked with the assignment to go find his wife, go find his wife who is back into prostitution. Now, think for a moment about what that must have been like for Hosea. Like, remember, Hosea is a prophet 
at this time. He's, he's one of the most popular men in the city. Think about the devastation that has occurred in Hosea's life. Think about the, the embarrassment. Think about what, what his kids must have thought. I'm sure Hosea is thinking to himself, man, I'm, I'm supposed to be this beacon of hope for the nation of Israel, and I can't even keep my wife at home. If you're Hosea, like, where do you begin? And God says, go again and find her. Go, go find your wife who's now back in the sex slave industry. See, Hosea has, has to go and, and look for her in the brothels. He has to go into the red light district and, and go try to find his wife and, and bring her back. Think about that for a moment. How, how of a, a heart-wrenching process, how messy that, that pursuit must have been for him. How, how painful. You know, he starts going down streets that, that men of God should not go down. You know, he goes to parts of the city that people say, look, you're, you're not supposed to be over there. You're not, not supposed to go over there. You're supposed to be a prophet. And then he goes down those streets looking for his wife, you know, sees some men, goes up to some men and says, hey, have you, have you seen my wife, Gomer? And they respond with, wait, your, your wife? And, and Hosea says, yeah, I, I haven't seen her in a while I'm looking for. Have, have you seen her? And they respond with, what? Man, we, we thought you guys split up. I, I saw her with some other guys a couple streets over. Man, I'm, I'm really sorry. He says, okay, thanks. And keeps on looking, keeps on trying to search and, and find her, goes over to those other streets. And we, we see in the text that he, he eventually finds Gomer. And as Gomer's back into the sex slave industry, what, what many scholars believe is that, is that Hosea actually walks in on an auction on his wife. Think about what that scene must have been like for Hosea. He walks in and he sees his wife, the, the mother of his children, who's, who's on this pedestal. And she's shackled, she's in chains, she's naked, and she's being sold to the highest bidder. And Hosea walks in on that and makes eye contact with, with Gomer and, and says to the men, no, 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 that, wait, that, that's, my, that's my wife right there. And the men respond and, and they say, man, we, we don't care who that woman is. This is her price. She, she's, she's for sale. And Hosea says, well, I, but I'm, I'm her. Well, what's the price? What, what is the price? And verse two, read verse two here. This is mind-blowing because it says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and, and some barley. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Like, like you're reading that and you're like, wait, 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 Hosea, th this is your wife. Like she's already yours. Like, what are you doing trying to buy back what is already rightfully yours? She is your wife. And look, this is, church, this is what's so mind-blowing about the story of Hosea is that this is a picture of God's love for us. That Hosea is a picture of God and you and I are Gomer here. And the reality is, is according to scripture, Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We're already God's. We are the possession, the unique possession of God. And yet, 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, the sinless savior, to die on a cross in order to what? In order to purchase us back to him. God's trying to redeem us, even though we were already his. Look, this is a picture of the gospel. This is, 
This is a scandal that's taking place here. Can, can you imagine what that exchange was like? As Hosea pays for his own wife and makes eye contact with Gomer, and she just hangs her head out of embarrassment, out of, out of shame. She's thinking to herself, man, I can't believe he found me. I can't believe he went looking for me. I, I, can't, I can't believe that that he bought me. He insists on, I abandoned him. I, I abandoned our children. Yet he insists on buying me back. You have a, a sea of men who are trying to buy her in order to use her. And yet Hosea is trying to buy her in order to heal her. It's an amazing, amazing scene. He, he buys her back. And then verse three, he, he kind of recommits his wedding vows to her. And it says that, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. This is what Hosea is saying to Gomer. This is what God is saying to us. Man, if this, if this was me, I don't know if I'm saying that. But think about how much of a scandal God's grace is in our own lives. You look at verse four, and there's, there's another pivot here as, as Hosea starts to prophesy. It says, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. So look, Hosea starts to prophesy about a future reality that will take place with the people of God, that we will dwell with our God. So this is much bigger than Hosea and Gomer. See, Hosea is starting to put more color to chapter two, verse one. He starts to prophesy. And then verse five, look at this, verse five, it says, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now, what he says here is, is he's prophesying about a future day. He uses the name David because he doesn't know the name of Jesus yet. So he's, he's doing the best with what he's got. And King David is, is really a, a type of Messiah. This is pointing forward to Jesus. And what he's saying here is that there will come a day when Jesus will bring us back into relationship with him and we will worship him in a faithful way. See, this is, this is a picture of the gospel story that Hosea buys back Gomer, even though she was already his, even though she ran away from him, even though she committed adultery, he, he still brings her back and then prophesies about a day in which the people of God would no longer be filled with fear because of terror and because of judgment. They would be filled with a type of fear because of what? Because of his goodness. Don't miss that. At the people of God in Israel's day, in Israel and Jew, they knew all about the terror and about the judgment of God. But what Hosea is saying is that there will be a day when the people of God will be filled with more of an awe of God's goodness, more of an awe of God's grace, more of an awe of God's loving pursuit of us who used to be gomers, who used to be lost, who used to be spiritual adulterers, and that God will purchase us back with the blood of Jesus and redeem us by his grace. Hosea says, there will be a day when that takes place, when there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There'll be a day when there's no more hiding in our shame, but we will be with our God. And the good news is that day is finally here. 
And Hosea didn't know that afterward, that'd be 750 years later, but salvation is here. Our Hosea is here and he has a name and his name is Jesus. That Jesus is the greater Hosea. And God came and he found you and he found me. And the reality is, is that God had to go through the most despicable places to find us, didn't he? In the same way that Hosea had to go down those streets to find Gomer, God had to come looking for us. And the reality is we weren't so neat and nice and put together. No, no, we were on a pedestal, weren't we? We were chained, shackled in our sin and in our adultery, in our idolatry, covered in our shame and in our sin. And you know what God said? God said, how much? how much to, pur- to purchase my people back? And the response was, the price is the blood of your own son. Because then and only then could God's wrath actually be satisfied. Could God's justice be fulfilled? And God said, okay, have my son. My son will come and he will be the payment for the sins of the world. Look, who, who's Hosea in this? Hosea, which means salvation. Hosea is a picture of God. And you and I, we are Gomer in this passage. And the beauty about God and his love and his grace is that he is pursuing us. He is searching for us and he will not stop until he finds all the Gomers that are rightfully his. And so reading this, I mean, I was praying last night, getting, getting ready for this morning. I mean, I... I was exhausted from yesterday, but I was struggling to sleep last night because this passage just rocked me. Like, like I am Gomer here. Like, think about that for a moment. All that Hosea did, that, that's what God has done for us. So look, if you're thinking about how do, we, how do we move from being filled with idolatry to being filled with this awe and praising him for his goodness, I think it starts by realizing that we are Gomer and that God is our greater Hosea. It's understanding all that God has done for us in the gospel and we exchange our idols for the greatness of his love. The scripture says in Romans 2 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It doesn't say God's anger. It doesn't say God's wrath. It doesn't say the consequences of us. It's a God's kindness in the gospel leads us to repentance. That's how we change. That's how we remove and exchange those idols in our life. It's dwelling on the goodness and the gospel that is centered upon Jesus. So are you here this morning and are you filled with idolatry in your life? Are you moving from one idol to the next? And maybe you're here and you're like, man, I, I just want freedom today. I, I don't wanna be this, this gomer. I don't wanna continue to commit spiritual adultery. I want, I want freedom. I just wanna encourage you to come to Jesus today. Like if you're here today and you're going from one idol to the next, maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, you're not a believer. Maybe you're here and you thought you were and you haven't and you haven't committed your life to Jesus. Can I just encourage you to, to come to Jesus? Like what greater display of his love than in, in Hosea chapter three? But don't leave this place without making the most important decision of your life of placing your faith and your trust upon Jesus, upon the greater Hosea and turning from your sin. Don't leave this place without doing that. And so this morning, I don't know about you, but man, I, I need space and I need time to respond in singing. 
of God's great scandalous love. So we're, we're gonna end with, with two more songs just to be able to, to proclaim the beauty of God's love for us. And the way I want you to use this is if you need to use kind of this space down here just to kind of hit the floor and just cry out to God and just say, God, I don't wanna deal with these idols anymore. I wanna be filled. I wanna be stunned by the scandalous grace of Jesus again. And you just wanna symbolically come down here and just commit all over again. You can use this space for that. You just wanna ask God, God, stun me with your love again. God, God, I'm sorry for, for having your love just be old hat in my heart. I want it to be fresh again. I want it to be renewed. And you just wanna use this time to please, please do that. Maybe you're here today and, and you wanna give your life to Jesus and become a Christian. I want you to know I'm gonna stand back there against that wall. And, and if you wanna just go out there and, and talk to me, I'd love to talk to you about what it means to, to follow Jesus and give your life to him. I'll turn off my mic. We'll just have a private conversation back there. So let's, church, let's um, stand after I pray and, and just sing with hearts, with a, a robust worship to our King of Kings. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the scandal of your grace. God, we thank you for your mercy and for your love. God, we are stunned that you came, Jesus, and you bought us back. Even though we were rightfully yours, God, you purchased our freedom. You paid our debts. You took our place. So God, we give you praise for that. We want our lives to be obsessed with your love for us that compels us to go and to find other gomers. So God, help us to worship you, we pray in Christ's name.